Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Urban Studies. I'm Peter Christian Eigner, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Steve Kahn about his new book, Americans Against the City, Anti-Urbanism in the 20th Century. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, it was a great book. It was a pleasure reading it, um, and I'm very glad that you could join us today. Um, why don't you uh, start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the project? Sure. I'm a professor in the history department at Ohio State, and I was really trained to be an intellectual historian, a history a historian of ideas. Uh, but I also, along the way, have picked up a real interest in the history of cities. I teach now urban history courses and a history more broadly of, of what historians like to call the built environment. And so where this book comes from is an attempt to try to put those two broad interests together. So what I'm trying to do in this book is look at the history of an idea, that is to say, the anti-urban tradition in American life, and look at the way it shaped real places, uh, places that people live and work and, and imagined uh, American society could, could move into from the late 19th century, really, you know, pretty close to the present day. Um, book took a long time. Uh, a lot of things got in the way, um, and and there were a number of fits and starts. But um, but that's where that's where the book came from. Hmm. Uh, that's interesting. Um, uh, so uh, uh, why don't we uh, get right to it? Uh, you you uh, I'm I'm sort of I said this to you before we began the interview, but I'm sort of astounded that there isn't a survey like this. It's it's uh, long overdue and it's uh, very well done. Um, you, you begin the book by talking about the Amer- American urban paradox. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, so if, if you want to go way back to the founding of the nation, you know, Jefferson stands as that embodiment of all of the anti-urban ideals uh, in this country. We were going to be a nation of yeoman farmers, and, and, and that was going to guarantee independence and virtue, and that was going to make the American experiment survive. But in fact, of course, from the uh, end of the 18th century right up to the present day, the population of the United States has continued to urbanize. And, and, and nowadays we talk about it more in terms of metropolitan areas rather than, strictly speaking, uh, cities. So even as we pay homage to all of those ideals that Jefferson articulated, that we, we want our 40 acres out there, we want a home on the range, et cetera, et cetera, we've actually been moving more and more to cities. It's something nowadays like 75% of us live in metropolitan regions of 200,000 or more. So, you know, in, in 1790, there were about 5% of us that lived in cities, and, and now uh, virtually nobody lives out in the country or in a small town or anything like that. Um, that's the paradox, is that we are a metropolitan nation filled with people who are still pretty suspicious of urban life. Yeah. I, I love that you begin the story with Jefferson and talking about the founding because it, it, you know, it points up a fact that I think is hugely important that I try to emphasize in my work too, that, you know, is sort of lost as you move further away from the late 1700s, which is that, you know, we, we labor under that constitutional system and, and that constitutional system was designed by people who were uh, very anti-majoritarian and, you know, you, you use this phrase, it's it's the tyranny of the small town. When you right. consider that up until Baker v. Carr, you know, uh, uh, it's really a minority of the country that was uh, controlling policy. And so when you study American social and political development, you always have to sort of yeah. keep in mind that it's not, you know, including no, this period that you're talking about. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the, this, the anti-urban uh, tradition 
uh, functions at a, at the level of, of cultural myths, right? Marlboro Man and, and cowboys and all of that stuff. But it is also, as you point out, built in structurally from the very beginning in the federal constitution and then in any number of state constitutions as well, that that representation is disproportionately uh, given to, to, to the rural areas at the expense of again, across the two, 200 years, growing urban centers. So, so yeah. they have always, and you see this play out, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, in all kinds of states in particular, that, that uh, Springfield, Illinois, is constantly trying to figure out ways to stick it to Chicago, and Albany is trying to stick it to New York City, and Harrisburg yeah. to Philadelphia, and so on and so forth, that the way in which those anti-urban politics play out at the state level um, is can be pretty bitter and, and, and has been for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, and they, they control, you know, these, these cities do not have uh, uh, home rule. You That's know right. I mean? they, yeah. And I, I, find, I came across, and again, uh, historians of, of the progressive era will know this, but um, one of the great progressive historians, a guy named Frederick Ward Howe, um, put out a book, and it must have been just about 100 years ago, actually, about 1913. Uh, and that's exactly what he called for. He called for the creation of what would amount to these city-states, that yeah. the cities were going to be the future of American life, and therefore we had to rebuild the structures of our politics to acknowledge that they were the economic centers, the population centers, the intellectual centers, the cultural centers. Yeah. But our politics didn't reflect that. So that's 100 years ago he's making the yeah. observation. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, Benjamin Barber has, has uh, been going around with uh, a book that's that's arguing the same thing. Um, it, it really is sort of backwards when you when you think about the way that the system is run. Um, yeah. Uh, well, so, so you begin talking about Jefferson, and then you you sort of go through in the first chapter um, uh, a sort of uh, um, sad uh, litany <laughs> of the greatest of, hits of, tour. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so uh, maybe you could talk a little sure. bit about some well, of those characters. Yeah, you know, um, there, you know, there are other nations that have a, a nostalgic, romantic, romantic relationship with with the rural, with the pastoral, and so forth. The we we inherited this to some extent from the English, but what's striking uh, about the American tradition is just how many of our leading figures, our leading intellectual figures, in the, especially in the nineteenth century are so aggressively anti-urban. Uh, and so start with Jefferson, move your way through to the transcendentalists who, who thought salvation was to be had, you know, uh, as a transparent eyeball in the woods, uh, <laughs> Thoreau uh, and all. And, and so you march through. And, and what's, what's rare in American life are those intellectual figures who really want to um, uh, celebrate uh, the, the the values of urbanity uh, to celebrate the possibilities of urbanism. So, you know, the the, the famous line of uh, Samuel Johnson's about uh, he who tires of London tires of life. Seventeen. Uh, there's, there's no American really who's who's going to articulate the same kind of uh, sensibility. Uh, that's what's really striking in the 19th century. Yeah, I kept on waiting for you to to, to bring somebody in, and, and, <laughs> and thinking to myself, I mean, surely there's there's some great intellectual defender of cities in American life, and and 
in American history. And well, you know, I think there are there right. I, I I probably could have highlighted a couple of them a little more in the 20th century. Uh, Jane Addams, I think, stands as one of those figures uh, in the early 20th century. Maybe William White. Uh, the journalist uh, in the in the mid twentieth century uh, as well, um, and and more recently, I mean, I think part of part of what drove me to write this book in the first place is is that we're living in a moment right now where at least some number of people are kind of rediscovering the city, uh, yeah. and some cities have become quite. Um, well, you know, fashionable or or trendy or whatever it is that you want to call it. So, so I think maybe in this generation, you know, there are writers who are going to emerge. Uh, but but when you put them up against Jefferson and Emerson, uh, it's it's a kind of unfair comparison. It seems very lopsided. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, well, uh, maybe this is a good time to to point out that uh, we're using some terms here that that um, uh, you go to some pains to uh, explain in the beginning. Um, so when I mean, we're talking about the anti-urban, we're not just talking about some a physical place. We're also talking about a set of ideals, yep. right? That's right. I mean, you have that nice quote from Aristotle in the beginning that uh, a great city is not to be conflated with uh, or confused with population. That's right. So what what cities represent is is uh, and I and I try to sketch this out very very quickly. Um, I see the function of cities in in two broad senses: uh, marketplace and meeting place. Um, so cities, uh, you know, it, it reach back eight thousand years. Cities begin to form because of an economic function, right? That they become as 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 agriculture develops and trading and all this sort of cities become the place of uh, economic exchange. But simultaneously, right, that people discover that bringing people together in those concentrations, now you're out of your tribe, you're out of your little hunting and gathering band, all kinds of other things begin to happen, intellectual and cultural frictions, and the the things that bubble out because of that, the uh, exchange of ideas. Um, and, and this is very basic to the development of human civilization, right? It's not a coincidence that the word city and the word civilization have the same Greek root. Um, no. So that marketplace and that meeting place is the way I, uh, broadly speaking, and it's, it's a very generalized definition, but that's the way I was thinking about the role of cities. And I think in the United States, that remains true and certainly um, was true across the 20th century. The anti-urban tradition, uh, in contrast, as I describe it, is also in two parts. On the one hand, it, it's a kind of ethno-racial uh, paranoia. Um, American cities in particular, more so than European cities, uh, become places of tremendous heterogeneity. Um, starts in Philadelphia, right, in the 18th century when it's attracting all of these different people, but certainly by the turn of the 20th century, New York, Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Chicago, um, just become these extraordinarily polyglot, mixed up populations of people. And there are lots of Americans who simply recoil at all of this. In the 19th century, it, it's heavily religiously inflected. It's Catholics. We don't like them. It's Jews. We don't like them even more. Um, <clears throat> but I think more broadly, it is this kind of ethno-racial hostility that make people recoil from the city. By the early part of the 20th century, these cities have grown so big so fast that um, if you're going to make life livable 
in these cities, you have to exercise the mechanisms of government. The private economy has failed, in a sense, by the end of the 19th century to keep up with the demands that these cities are making. Water, uh, lighting, uh, sanitation, all those kinds of basic things that, that we need to survive. The the market, as it were, the 19th century economy is not delivering. So if you're going to make life livable in these cities, you've got to uh, use the tools of government. And that's what the progressives really understood at the, at the beginning of the 20th century. So lots of Americans as well hate the idea that the city represents government intervention and probably even more government intervention that works. Right? The <laughs> idea that in New York City now... Eight million people can turn on their tap and get drinkable water. I mean, that's like, that's a miracle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The efficiencies that government manages to deliver in cities becomes anathema to this kind of anti-government tradition, which I see as part and parcel of the anti-urban tradition. Yeah. Well, and you note that uh, I mean this is uh, this is problem scale uh, problem solving on a huge scale. I mean um, uh, the statistics you have here on the uh, concentration of people in the Lower East yeah. Side. I mean, at one point you know you know that while historians have talked a lot about the uh, ethnic and class inflection to a lot of this uh, anti-urban rhetoric, um, uh, density, which was seen as the central problem of the cities, is is enormous in the Lower East Side. Seven hundred and thirty. Yeah. Uh, people per acre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In some places, a thousand people yeah, per acre, yeah. and Chicago, it's six hundred fifty, yeah. and on, on, and on. And this is before high rises. Right. You know, these are places that have no streets, no water, no sanitation, no schools, lighting, transportation. It's, it's, uh, it's staggering. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's why, again, I, 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 I want to resist the urge ever to think that there was a good old days here, um, because if you, you know, imagine what it would have smelled like. <laughs> Chicago a hundred years ago, right? Um, you've got dead animals in the street. You've got dead animals floating in the in the river, right, from all the the slaughterhouses, uh, and there's no municipal sanitation system uh, where it's just be right. So, in fact, government is the agency that makes all of that life better for people, and it and and so it's housing on the one hand, it's sanitation on the other hand, it's sanitary markets over here, it's clean water over there, and all of this infrastructure is being built in the late 19th and really through the uh, first quarter uh, or even a little more of the 20th century, paved roads. Uh, gas lines, all that kind of stuff. Um, that, it seems to me, is the great triumph of city life. And that's why a lot of progressives thought that the city would be the model for the rest of the nation. Right? Mm -hmm. The problems of the city are simply the problems of the nation in microcosm. And so if we can solve them here, we can solve them nationally. And that's, I think, the reaction, that prompts the reaction by uh, these anti-government, anti-statist Americans who may or may not have, you know, ethno-racial bigotries, but they really object to the role of the state because Americans are a nation of pioneers and homesteaders, and and that's our mythology. And so they hate the idea that the city represents this cooperative, collective government enterprise. Right. Right. Um. And these uh, these uh, thinkers are even worse. These thinkers are bringing in ideas uh, from across the Atlantic. I mean, there's a lot of this uh, cross pollination since mm -hmm. Europe is going through the same thing. Yeah, I think that the um, you know it, it 
a number of really terrific historians, I'm thinking about Jim Kloppenberg and Dan Rogers, um, have looked at this transatlantic moment in progressive life. I think part of what's interesting to notice is what happens to those ideas on the boat as they come from Germany or England uh, and they wind up uh, in New York or Chicago. Um, things like zoning uh, uh, tend to get watered down. Um, and I think that the, you know, what Americans always want is the solution that will come somehow from the private sector. Uh, and so these ideas that get that um, that come on over, come over in a slightly different form. The the biggest idea that that I think uh, an influential group of Americans uh, brings up is, is the notion of the garden city, that the way to deal with the problem of the city is to decentralize it. That's the word that I was, it just kept coming up every time I was doing my research. We're going to decentralize, we're going to move people out, and we're going to create new places for them to live. So that garden city idea pops up early in the 20th century. It pops up again in the 1930s. It pops up again in the 1960s and 70s. It's it's this, again, sort of undercurrent uh, idea that we can solve the problem of the city by leaving it uh, and by starting all over again, tabula rasa. Right, right, dispersing the population and the industry. And the industry, exactly. And that's how to solve the problem, uh, the problems of the city. Right. Um, so uh, I wonder if we could pause here just to talk a little bit about some of these these people. You, you, you talk in this chapter about uh, Dan Burnham and, and Jane Adams and yeah. Robert Park, some of these people that people might uh, not be entirely familiar with listening right now. Sure. So um, the the progressives. So so what I what I try to set up in this book is that this this first couple of decades of the 20th century, what what historians uh, still still refer to as the progressive era is that moment in American life when um, a, a, a group of people want to commit to the city, want to make it work. And if the in the 19th century the city had been seen as the problem, progressives see the city as a place with problems. Um, and so what they, they become technocratic, they become pragmatic. Uh, what they want to identify is, okay, we have a problem of housing. How do we solve it? We have a problem of sanitation. How do we solve that? And that's really what progressive reforms are all about. If you look at the, the litany of uh, progressive accomplishments, you notice that many of them are really designed to fix specific pieces of, of the urban problem. So Jane Adams, yes, but uh, uh, in Hull House, she's the, the person who recognizes, I think, um, some of the great possibilities of of multiculturalism. Um, she really yeah. isn't interested in simply melting these people down into a melting right. pot. She's recognizing that uh, the Greeks and the Italians and the Poles uh, each bring something interesting. Dan Burnham, uh, the the architect um, and city planner, uh, who who was you know lived right across town from Jane Adams uh, in Chicago. Uh, is, is is thinking in terms of of how we make cities um, turn them into orderly and indeed sort of spectacular places. So the the city has grown up in a haphazard way. It's been driven by private real estate interests, most of which have been bad. So the idea that we could use planning as a way of making something that is urban and making it urbane. And I think that's right. 
that's what uh, Burnham and other planners like him are uh, are all about. Um, there are a couple of other of these progressives that pop up in my book, Frederick Ward Howe, um, who who really believes that the key to um, that 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 American democracy itself will be reinvigorated by urban life, be precisely because it's where lots of different people have to come together to solve common problems. And that's the nature, that, that's the very definition of democracy as far as he's concerned. So, right, this, 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 this nice collection of figures that I was, I spend some time with in what I'm calling America's urban moment, uh, this, this, this pivot between the 19th and the 20th century when, when Americans set about trying to really make cities work. Yeah, and it really is a moment. When I was thinking about your book before calling you this morning, it actually really just struck me that these are just a few decades. It's 1920, and then with the census that America becomes a majority of population, it was a long-standing trend. And, and, and as you say, we, we are still this quasi-urban nation. Um, uh, yet, you know, uh, to a significant degree, because of the things we just got done talking about, the, all these these problems that density creates, um, and the lack of any sort of infrastructure and, and planning for it, uh, and the difficulty of getting those things done, especially in, in the kind of system we have, right, where yeah. the states and the small towns are still the ones making these decisions. Right. So these cities are going through these problems, but they don't; they're not empowered to make those decisions yeah. to, to solve them. You know, when you think about um, that period of spectacular urban growth, and let's let's date it, you know, approximately from the end of the Civil War through the, you know, 1920s. That is also the moment when lots of Western states are being added to the Union, uh, carved out of those territories in the Trans-Mississippi West. So every one of those states has virtually nobody living in it, and they all get two senators. Uh, right. And so by the time you get to Washington, you know, there are more people living in Chicago than probably Wyoming, Nevada, and Utah combined. And yet <laughs> Chicago doesn't really have any representation in Washington. And you can play that out in microcosm at the state level as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm editing one of the chapters from my book and, and talking about, you know, in the 1950s, right, just to give people a sense of, of the enormity of this, in the 1950s, you have Los Angeles, which is the fastest growing, yeah. right, one of the fastest growing cities yeah. in the post-war era. It, it, Los Angeles County has a tremendous number of people, I forget the number, and yet um, they had something like one or two congressmen. Yeah. Right, right, um, right. Uh, you know, and and the same story could same could be said for New York. This is this is a big part of why Al Smith is important, and and and, yep. and you know the ways in which the the state the state legislature, which benefits tremendously. I mean, all that corruption of Albany, you know, all these state legislators. I mean, they're cashing in on these cities that are the engines of economic growth. Right. Yet they, um, uh, while they're content to build the city, they don't want to pay for any of the problems, or they don't want to. Yeah. Uh, well, and again, it's it's not that they and you know the, 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 there's all kinds of echoes here to contemporary politics, right? And, and that's part of what's fun about being a historian. But um, there are all kinds of um, it, it's not that those people up there in upstate New York or in downstate Illinois object to government spending. We know that. Uh, <laughs> we know that they love to cash those checks. They just don't. They just don't want to. They don't want to see it. You know, I think the work of uh, Brian Ballow um, down at UVA in his book on the 19th century talks about how Americans want their government hidden from them. 
So out there in the country, you ride out there on your interstate highways and you're cashing your agricultural subsidy checks and so on. And and government is hidden from you in the city. It's not. And I think that's what they really object to. It's public housing and public transportation and public schools. And so that's the that that's what gets people upset is that it's somehow uh, it's government out in front rather than behind the behind the curtain. Right. Okay, so so let's uh, go forward with the story here. So we're we're now up to the interwar period, um, and you talk about this this uh, you describe as a broad and somewhat inchoate uh, movement of decentralists. Yeah. Um, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about some of, some of these characters? So there's the you know Lewis Mumford and the Regional Planning Association, right. Ralph Bersodi, and these people. Yeah. So what happens in the twenties, I think, is that. Um, you know, after the dust of the First World War settles, after immigration essentially ends, right, that with, with the war and then with the immigration restrictions, there's this moment when the anti-urbanists are able to collect themselves, catch their breaths, and then go to work because the cities really, uh, you know, the, 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 the dynamic of the cities has changed. Many of them fall in love with technology in the 1920s, and the two biggest pieces of technology they fall in love with are the automobile and uh, electricity. Um, because those, the reason we're concentrated in cities is because that's the demand of the economy, right? It's it's where centralized power is. It's where uh, resources get located, uh, and therefore people have to be near those jobs. Okay, so that's the logic of of the industrial revolution. For in the 1920s uh, and even into the 30s. Um, these 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 folks begin to believe that the automobile can put us at a great distance from our jobs. We can move out that way. And electricity makes it possible to set up industries anywhere. You don't need to be near the river anymore or the source of the coal or anything else like that. Electricity, because it, it, it decentralizes the power necessary for industry. So it's so some of these guys fall in love with that idea, that this is now the possibility, is we can use new technologies to achieve this decentralization. Um, there are, you know, the, the, the Depression becomes this interesting moment when these decentralists have to come to terms with um, whether or not to, to use federal power, which they don't like, to achieve the goal of decentralization, which they do like. And I think one of the things I was really interested in, because I, you know, I didn't know this stuff very much before I started writing this book, was the extent to which the New Deal really was about trying to decentralize cities and industry. And so it's the Civilian Conservation Corps on the one hand, we're going to take these boys from the city, we're going to put them out in the country. And it's the Tennessee Valley Authority. We're going to create, we're going to electrify this entire backward rural region in order that, um, well, that Honda plants will now move down there and Mercedes plants and whatever else is down there nowadays, right? Um, So these decentralists like Mumford, like Ralph Borsodi, who was a really crazy guy, um, really wacky, um, they they have to sort of decide whether to get in bed with the New Deal or not, uh, because the New Deal seems to be now the, the way in which we can use centralized power to achieve a decentralized nation. Um, and that, I think, was a really interesting moment. There's also this thing in the Depression that I noticed, and, and Ralph Borsodi, who I think has you know largely been forgotten, um, 
was central to, there, there are a couple of these episodes in American life where faced with a kind of national crisis, the American response is to go back to the land. Uh, and this did happen in the 30s. People did decide that, that my personal security would be, um, would be better served if I went back to the farm. And so capitalizing on that, um, these homesteading projects, these resettlement projects, these new town projects, try to, try to persuade people that there's a life to be had outside the city which will protect you from, uh, from the collapse of the economy. And I think you see that in the 30s, you see that at the end of the 60s. And how many of your neighbors there in New York are raising chickens right now? You know, I mean, yes. the kind of impulse uh, right. to do this, and I think it is peculiarly American. We we don't want to, you know, we, we want to go back to that 19th century. We get out our copy of Walden Pond and, and we decide that's where we're going to go uh, to ride it all out. Um, and I don't think that's a European tradition. I think the Europeans yeah. tend to take to the streets and the Parisians throw up the barricades um, and, and we go, we go back and start growing tomatoes. Uh, so, um, so that, right. So that, that happens in the, in the 1930s, this, um, this moment when maybe we can go back to the land and, and that's the depression will now drive us out of the cities to achieve that decentralized nation. Yeah. And well, so, yeah, we, we had this impression that the New Deal was uh, focused on cities. Um, we forget that, you know, FDR was a, a great hater uh, in some ways yeah. of cities. Um, and, um, you know, I'm constantly struck by the, the in, in thinking about the decline of the New Deal, uh, you know, a big historiography, the ways in which the New Deal itself is responsible for the decline of the New Deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, so you're quite right. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, did not like cities at all. Um, and when you asked me a moment ago about, you know, uh, is there is, is are there figures who really did like American cities? Um, I, I should have added uh, FDR's cousin, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who really was a New York kid uh, mm-hmm. and really did um, see the possibilities of urban life. Um, he's rare. Uh, there's a wonderful line he writes about, uh, you know, the the what wonderful use the poet could make of the Bowery. You know, it's it's what 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 Dante do if he were here in Lower Manhattan. But anyway, yeah, the uh, one of the very early biographies of Franklin Roosevelt is titled "Country Squire in the White House." Right. He was a country squire, uh, yeah. and and he thought we all ought to be too. So, so a number of the New Deal programs clearly had impacts in the city. Um, but there was no urban policy as such, whereas much of his attention is really focused on both the agricultural economy, but also on rural life. And that's, yeah. that's where, you know, as I said, you sort of tie together everything from the Agricultural uh, Adjustment uh, Act to, to the Civilian Conservation Corps, to the T- Tennessee Valley Authority. That's, that's where the big projects are really happening. Get us out of the city. Yeah, I was talking to Mason Williams a couple of weeks ago about his book on FDR and LaGuardia. Mm. And, uh, he was making this point that, you know, what FDR really wanted was were not these programs that, that uh, urban historians remember, but yeah, um, that's right. this back to the land stuff. That's right. Um, and and so, you know, that in that sense, um, it, I, it this is not a... I, I think it's worth remembering that the anti-urban tradition can cut in both directions on the political spectrum. 
You know, I think today we think of it as uh, shaded far to the right, and I think that's largely true, but there is this left anti-urban tradition as well, and you can find it in the New Deal, and again, you find it in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's uh, get closer to the '60s and sure. and talk about the post-war era. Um, uh, in the post-war era, we see for the first time since people began counting that eleven of the twelve largest cities—these uh, are cities in the north—all shrink. Yep. Um, two-thirds of the baby boom occurs in the suburbs. Yep. I did. I did not know that. I found that a rather uh, a very important uh, sociological fact. Um, and uh, the, the, the big sort of showcase uh, in your chapter here is on uh, is urban renewal. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so here again, you know, it, maybe you can sort of hear the echo of the New Deal. Urban renewal is an idea that begins to percolate in the 30s. Um, and, and the first piece of it is slum clearance. Um, so the, the way we're finally going to solve the problem of concentration, density, and, and all that stuff, we're going to literally tear it all down. The you know, urban renewal has been much written about, and, and, um, and I think it's hard to find too many defenders of urban renewal these days, because you look around at the results, and, and much of it is not pretty. Um, the point that I wanted to make, I didn't want to pile on about that, but the point that I wanted to make here is that having finally now in the post-war period committed to a serious engagement with urban problems, the federal government really had no positive urban vision to draw. So what they had to draw on was the suburbs. And so we were going to turn our cities into things that looked approximately like suburbs. And, and that's because there hasn't been a pro or a positively urban uh, discourse in American life. So so, so there was sort of urban rule sort of doomed from the start because once you tear it all down, what do you build in its place? And right. that's what nobody, nobody had any good ideas about that. Um, right. So you have uh, everybody from Le Corbusier who comes to the United States in the 30 and so, you know, and, and, and the Radiant City model. And you have Futurama uh, from the 1939 World's Fair. Big highways, big towers. Well, that's what American cities were turned into uh, after the Second World War. It looks a lot like Futurama. So that's really the point that I wanted to make about urban renewal. And in terms of that you were just describing, when it's clear that the situation of the American city is deteriorating uh, in the 1960s, it's a combination of economics and racial tension and all that sort of stuff that historians like Tom Segrew have, have detailed um, I would really, I, I would see the, the, the beginning of the end of America's liberal consensus beginning in the city, uh, that, that if, if it's the failure of the city that both sides, right and left, point to as what's bankrupt about the liberal agenda. Right, right, right. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, it, it's sort of surprising to me. You, I, I like that you, um, uh, you know, it, it's logical to follow up the talk of urban renewal with talking about the highway, but I like that you point out that while urban renewal displaced, what, 600,000 people, yeah. um, uh, the Highway Act, you know, unlike urban renewal, which, which, which you know, uh, becomes a symbol for a liberal failure or the failure of the federal government to do things and provokes right. this act on the left and the right, the Highway Act, which is, 
this phenomenally larger yep. use of government power. It's it 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 displaces millions of people. Yep. Um, and yet, and, and, you know, it's it's this complete handout, this corporate handout. Um, and yet, there is no anti-government. <laughs> right, right. The highway, you know, uh, you know, by the early 1960s, you've got what Robert Weaver or, or Charles Abrams, I forget who, you know, talking, admitting publicly that, um, uh, you know, urban renewal has has been a terrible. Right. It's become Negro removal, right. even though a third of the people right. in this place is white and. Uh, but late into the 60s, uh, people are celebrating the, what the destruction, That's essentially, right. of That's highways. Right. Yeah, that was one of the interesting things that I simply didn't know before I before I started poking around, was that um, just how little opposition there was to the highway until really the end of the 1960s and then into the 1970s, that uh, even while urban renewal projects were being condemned, highway projects rolled on. And, and part of this, I think, um, go back to your question of, or, or your comment about structure. Um, I think if you follow the money, uh, it, it helps explain this a little bit because urban renewal was federal money that was then administered locally in whatever city was going to do the project. So, so right. it, was, it was through an agency established by city government, et cetera, et cetera, which meant that if you didn't like it, you could walk down to city hall and you knew who you could beat up. The highway projects sent money to the state, to the state capitals, and it was the State Department of Transportations, which then um, uh, uh, planned out all those roads, executed the contracts, and and did the construction, which meant that if you were in New York, you'd have to go to Albany. Right. Or, uh, and and nobody so the so the buck never really stopped anywhere right for these exactly. so it's it's hard to know where you would have gone to protest but I think I, I, taught, at, I taught at four colleges in New York and I, I would wager that a good number of the students didn't know that Albany was the capital right, <laughs> right exactly <laughs> much was where it was yeah um, but it is also the case right that that we the the highway is that great example of hidden government, um, because it gets funded at the tune of uh, 90 cents to every dollar by the federal government, but everybody who drives on it think it's, thinks it's their road um, and that they own it uh, private. And, and so I think that also helps explain why these highway projects were um, uh, relatively uncontroversial. And w- w- what I mean by that as well is that um, the urban renewal uh, legislation also insisted on dealing with displacement. Uh, so we know how many people were displaced by urban renewal projects, yeah. approximately. The highway legislation didn't do anything like that. You, you didn't have to count how many people you were displacing. You didn't have to do anything for them once you displaced them, once you bought them out and uh, and, and tore down the buildings. So, in fact, we, we really don't know in, in real exact terms uh, what, that, uh, what the consequences of, of the highway projects really were. Yeah, maybe that's an important thing to note. I mean, uh, uh, there's this impression too that um, that this had to be inevitable. But there's there's both things that work too, right? I mean, the design of the program pushes this anti-urban agenda, right? right. I mean, so uh, 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 Kenneth Jackson in his book on 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 the suburbs talks about how the FHA made it cheaper to have a house in the suburbs than to have an apartment in the city, right? Um, these highways, the second that they that there's a plan announced, you, I, I, this was news to me that you know the the, the local real estate market just nosedives. Oh sure, um, yeah. Uh, 
uh, you know, so this is encouraging people to, you know, 70% your quote, another, another staggering quote from your book, uh, 70% of the public is relying on public transportation in the mid 1950s. Yeah. To get to work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so the federal government is driving essentially you have this, I forget who it was that you quote, but you know, it's almost as if there's a conspiracy, you know, this Washington conspiracy against the city. Right. Yeah. And, and so in that sense, if, if we really do believe all the Chicago school, uh, economists that we're just rational actors responding to incentives, the incentives are all to move to the suburbs. Um, you can do it on a federally subsidized road, uh, with, uh, uh, with federally subsidized gasoline, uh, go to your federally subsidized house and um, and it is much cheaper and easier than than renting an apartment uh, in a city which is now deteriorating uh, in in large swaths of urban America, right that that the 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 deindustrialization that's happening at the same time, sort of nobody really quite recognizes the tsunami that that's going to create. So, yeah, no, I, and I wouldn't say conspiracy. I, I, I just, just because uh, it gives people far too much credit. Um, and, um, but it, but it's right. It's this kind of confluence of incentives that get created and right. The, um, you know, the number of people who are in, are employed in the economy by, by the early 1970s, um, in things that have to do with cars. So it's whether it's, it's in the auto industry, the highway construction industry, the auto parts. And I mean, it's just a staggering number uh, the, the extent to which the economy is dependent now on everything that has to do with automobiles uh, yeah. by, by yeah. the end of this period. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know this as well, as well that um, I, I know a little bit about this because uh, I'm writing a, a biography of Dave Patrick Moynihan oh, who had a, a big article on the Highway Act um, and some of this stuff. And um, you note that in 1962, Congress added language uh, to the Highway Act, I, I guess, right, uh, forcing some of these states to provide relocation right. system, assistance, which was common to a lot of programs in Europe. And, right. uh, but the states ignored the mandate right. and then falsified reports to Washington, right. claiming that there was plenty of available housing around. Right. right? Because when they put down these highways, they would either, you know, just demolish the neighborhood, they would cut it off from the rest of the neighborhood, you know, and, and, yeah. uh, uh, and so, so that they can get this federal money. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and as well, I was, there, there's a, I think it's a Yale Law Review article I found from either the late 60s or the early 70s, um, which tried to survey how many lawsuits had been filed against highway projects. And it's a tiny number. Uh, whereas again, urban renewal projects by this point have become very controversial. It turns people mm-hmm. out in the streets; they're uh, fighting in the courts and so on and so forth. But it really, yeah. you, you know, I, I think I say in, in the book, a, as much as fleets of bulldozers can fly under the radar screen, this really somehow <laughs> flew under the radar screen for a lot of Americans because, again, I think it was really perceived as something. This is where America's headed. Uh, right. Trains are the old news, and cars are the are the wave of the future. And so these road projects just, um, they, they, yeah, they just went ahead. And of course, and this is you know in the 1960s, um, race becomes race becomes the dominant factor in these conversations, right? Because um, you have all these people that, again, you, you know, Southerners using New Deal loan money are are automating in the South and pushing millions of you know three million blacks mm-hmm. and millions more whites. Uh, out of the south, and they're coming north to these cities where where jobs are leaving. Right. 
Um, and then they're then being stranded there. Um, and uh, these so these calls by Walter Ruther and Roy Wilkins and everyone else to have martial plans for the cities fall on deaf ears because the cities are the place of riots and they're yeah. in the place of, you know, there are places people want to leave. Yeah, um, I, you know, so I think, again, that um, a lot of people have looked at the at the racial dynamics uh, of of that urban crisis moment in the 50s and certainly in the 1960s. And and the way I uh, massage this a little bit in, in my book is to suggest that the, the 1960s is the moment when, when these two strands of anti-urbanism that I've been documenting come together. So it's the right. ethno-racial bigotries on the one hand and the government on the other hand. Now they're the same thing. Right, because it's the government is working for those people and those right. public housing projects. It's my tax money for those people, and that I think is is right. That kind of perfect storm of of bad uh, circumstances that that really do cause this sense that we could we, we just got to get rid of the cities altogether. And to your point earlier, I mean, when, so when the the Kerner report comes out, there's there's nothing about there's twenty pages, right? Yeah. Up to planning for the city, yeah. so there's because there's no intellectual That's fodder. Right. That's right for, for thinking forward. Um, Pruitt Igo's blown up, and it's the end of an era. Yeah. And um, yeah, uh, and, and the Nixon administration really does now. You know, the Nixon administration plus the the recession of the '70s, but it, that's really the end of um, of federal urban policy, uh, and we really haven't had anything equivalent since. And maybe that's a good thing, given the results. Um, but it's kind of interesting to think about that in 40-odd years, we urban policy has taken place um, almost entirely at the local level. Um, right. right? It's, it's, it's community groups and CDCs and um, urban homesteaders and things like this. There's been no larger sense of how you recreate the structure of incentives to promote uh, a healthier urbanism, right? Because we're still subsidizing the suburbs. We're still subsidizing pro- private automobile use, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, and that's been, you know, as I said, we, we, we've been sort of absent in urban policy for, for 40 years now. Yeah, yeah. And well, this, this, this leads perfectly to the end of the book, which is talking about the rise of the Sunbelt cities. Yes. Um, Houston and these other places, which which embody the views and the values of these decentralists, right? Yeah. So come to dominate not just in terms of the size, you know, large cities in America, but also politically. Yeah. Um, so so the Sun Belt cities uh, that that really and they, I, I think people at the time, you know, after the Second World War, were, were genuinely astonished. It really was like they just came out of nowhere, like like mushrooms after a rainstorm uh, in the forest. Um, but but here's the place where you, where you don't have to rebuild along these decentralist principles. You can just build from scratch because because these places are so small to begin with. Um, and so what you what what I was really uh, struck by were the figures about density um, that uh, these places are so thinly populated as compared to the older industrial cities. So that sense you have in Los Angeles or Houston or Phoenix or Dallas, that it's all horizontal, 
I mean, that's numerically true that the the um, the population is spread out. So you know, the popul the, the density of Chicago is I'm gonna I'm gonna get this mostly right is something like uh, twelve thousand people per square mile, and in in Dallas it's something like three thousand people per square mile. So. So that that idea that we're gonna it, it's all gonna be built around the cars, it's all gonna be built horizontally, um, and in that way as well, we can solve the problem of um, of ethno-racial heterogeneity because we'll never interact with people. Uh, we'll we'll spread ourselves so far apart that there are no sidewalks that we can bump up into each other on. Um, we'll all be in our cars and we'll all be spread all over this vast area. Um, and I think it's not coincidental um, that these are the places. So, ju so just as the city in the north is the place where the liberal agenda falls apart, the city in the south is where the new right agenda coalesces. Uh, and my, you know, I had I had fun writing about Houston because the, you know, Houston remains the largest city in the United States without a zoning code. And the reason it doesn't have a zoning code is because zoning, if you if you impose land use restrictions, that's the first step to Stalinism. I mean, that's what these people really believe, and they believe that. Yeah. You, you write that that John, uh, uh, founder, Robert Welch, the founder of the John Birch Society, comes to give talks on this point. Yeah, exactly. It's astounding to me. Right. Um, so it's the slippery slope, right? So we're going to keep government entirely out of the business of building the city altogether, uh, which is why those places become such a mess. I mean, one of the things I, I probably could have written a little more about is that this is the attitude that dominates in Houston in the 50s and 60s during this incredible boom period. By the 70s and 80s, they've quietly walked some of this back. Yeah. In, in, in fact, our city is a mess. Uh, yeah. Air pollution, the crime. Uh, and, and so maybe we do actually have to start accepting some federal help here because what we got is is not working. Um, but but they, as I say, they do that very quietly. <laughs> they don't want to admit yeah. too much out loud. And Houston itself, of course, has changed demographically. Um, you know, so if you're talking about Houston at the end of the 20th century is a very different place. But nonetheless, I, you know, the, I had I had fun writing about that. Uh, yeah, yeah I, wanted, I wanted more on that. But, you know, <laughs> next book, maybe. Right, right. Um, uh, so, okay, so uh, this is now the, the, the end of the era, and, and we, get, we get to... Uh, we have the the hippies, the commune movement. Yeah. We have in the nineteen eighties and the communitarians and the new urbanists. So maybe uh, you can uh, try to pull all those all those together. Yeah. So I think what you know, just like in the nineteen thirties, uh, there is this anti-urban left that emerges in the nineteen sixties, and I see it. I, I focused on it uh, most in this um, in this back to the land com uh, commune movement. Um, which was a very big deal, even if it was only briefly a very big deal, probably about a decade from the end of the 60s to the end of the 70s. Um, and what you see there is the same kind of rhetoric that you see from a different part of the political spectrum. Um, the city is the source of all of our problems. And if we're going to uh, and and it's and it's oppressive and it's and it's the establishment and it's all this other sort of stuff. It's what gave us the Vietnam War and and et cetera et cetera. So the solution is to go back and um, and go back to the land and and get a pair of uh, uh, overalls and and start growing <laughs> organic vegetables. And I lived on one of those places uh, for uh, on and off for a while, and so I totally understand the appeal of it. Uh, but but it is this it is part of of that anti-urban tradition. Um, 
by the um, by the end of the century, um, and, and then in that last part of the book, I, I pair up the new urbanist planners, architects, and advocates uh, with this little uh, uh, movement in sociology and philosophy called communitarianism, and the people the the, the people associated with that are people like Emma Tiazioni and. Um, who's at uh, GW, I think, and, and Robert Putnam, the sociologist at Harvard, um, that, that what we need to do is restore some sense of community values um, because we've become atomized individuals. We all go bowling alone, and right. therefore we need to, to rebuild our society to, to promote community values. Um, but what's fascinating to me about them or what, and why I wanted to write about them was that they cannot envision that community can be created in, in an urban context. So when they think about where this is going to take place, it's almost inevitably the suburbs. Um, so you see the same kind of anti-urban bias, even at the end of the 20th century, that we can't have those meaningful bonds, social relationships, shared obligations, except out there in, in the suburb or maybe in a small town. Uh, you can't have it in Brooklyn, uh, or on the, on the, uh, on the West side of Chicago. And I just think that, that, you know, in some ways that's, it almost parrots what people were saying at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, that, well, and it's, yeah, it, I mean, um, <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's very flattering to, to, to you as a person, if you're living in the suburbs, uh, but almost from the beginning, there are people in the suburbs who were, uh, complaining about how stultifying life oh, is yeah, there. That's right. You know, I mean, our, you know, the suburbs, the suburbs are, you have this, uh, uh you know, you, Right at one point, that the, there's almost a, an invisible umbilical cord tying these suburbs to the cities. They depend on these That's cities right. not just for not just for their jobs, right. and for the economic growth that they produce, but also because cities are are as we said in the beginning, right? These these enormous producers of cultural life. That's right. Yeah, it's not an accident that the 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 majority of the great American universities are located in the middle of cities. Um, that's, you know, in England, it's Oxford and Cambridge and that's, and they're out sort of in the, and that's the monastic model, but here it's the university of Chicago and it's Harvard and it's UCLA and, um, and the university of Minnesota, and they're all located in urban centers. And that's, as I said, it's not coincidental. So, so when you, right, when you, when you want your medical research done, when you want to listen to the symphony orchestra, when you're looking for where new art, new ideas come from, they're not going to come, uh, you know, from Hicksville, Long Island. They're, they're coming from uh, 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 urban centers, right? So both economically, but in all these other ways, we are umbilically connected. Um, you know, William White writes about this uh, in the in the 1950s. He he may be the first person to to see that the suburbs are producing this alienation. Um, and the way he describes it in the organization, man, is your heart and your treasure are in two different places. Um, you live in the suburb, but you work in the city, so you really aren't part of either place. And that creates this uh, this, this atomized, alienated person. Um, and, and I think he came out with that book in about 1956. And I think it's, you know, I think there's still some truth to that. Yeah, yeah. Um well, uh, we've taken a lot of your time today. Um, I'm very glad to uh, have had the chance to speak to you. Um, this is a wonderful book. I hope everyone goes out and buys it. Um, why don't you tell us uh, what you're working on now? Oh, wow. What a good question. Uh, and first, thanks for, so much for having me. Um, so at the moment, I'm working on a very small article that takes me back to the 19th century uh, and doesn't have anything much to do at all with cities. 
uh, but has to do with um, the anti-Catholic sentiment in the 1840s and 50s. And, um, and I'm interested in how it was connected to Americans' ideas or views of the Italian Revolution in 1848, 1849. And, and the, this is a project that came out of a, a, an undergraduate class I taught a couple of years ago. And I just thought, well, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to go pursue this for a while and see yeah. what happens to it. So that's, that's what's on the docket at the moment. Okay. Well, that sounds really interesting. Well, Steve, thanks so much for talking right, to us yeah. today.